For this podcast, I'd like to talk about faith and quarantine with regards to the history of the church or how we got there. And yes, I'm going to cover 2,000 years of history in two podcasts and try to make it fun. Uh, first of all, I want to tell you that a lot of what we do as the church, and whether, whether we talk about St. Luke's Church or we talk about Mount Brook Baptist or we talk about Canterbury or any of the churches of our neighborhood uh, or any church down the road, uh, we all have some common roots, a common origin that happened long before the churches began to split and began to have disagreements with each other on how to order themselves or even theology. And really all of our churches, I'm trying to say to you, are grounded in a biblical story. So a lot of what I'm going to say this morning has to do with our biblical story. You could say that the organization of the church really begins in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And I'm just going to read it to you. Because here we are. We're, we're only six chapters into the beginning of Christianity, and they're already fussing about something. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of a little church uh, I used to hang out with down in Montgomery that had, I think, between 9 and 15 members. And they had between 9 and 15 factions. Because, hey, that's the way it goes. So, in Acts chapter 6, with the first verse I'm going to read. Now, in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the church was growing, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. Well, what the disciples did is they fixed a problem by setting aside people for a special order of service. The waiting on tables words really just means the distribution of food to the poor and the help of the poor. And so these seven who were set aside were, you might say, the first order of ordained ministry, and this was called diaconia. Diaconia is where we get the word deacon. Now, in the Episcopal Church, deacons are an ordained order. I know that in some churches, other Protestant churches, anyway, deacons are more of a governing board like our vestry. Uh, but in our church, deacons are an order that, that comes right here from Acts chapter 6. It's biblically biblically grounded, and you will notice that our deacons at St. Luke's, uh, Mark and Katie, wear a stole in a diagonal fashion uh, across their chest, and that is to evoke a, a serving towel, serving at tables. Now, for those of you listening to this podcast, if you know me or know who I am, uh, I worked in a clothing store, a nice men's clothing store, before I went to a seminary, to the point that I had a little bit of a reputation as a snappy dresser. And so when I got out of seminary, in our church, you're a deacon first. You're a deacon for six months before you're ordained a priest. And I'll say more about priesthood in a minute. Anyway, you're deacon first, and I'm wearing my stole in the diagonal way. Well, I also ended up have, ha, having to go going back to Montgomery, which is where I lived and sold those snappy clothes. And so the congregation was a little bewildered that my stole was different than my boss's, who was the rector of the church. And they just figured that I was trying to make a fashion statement, wear it in a rakish uh, direction. Nope, it's not rakish. It is a serving towel, and it's intended to remind us of a deacon's function. So what deacons do is they are, it's intended for deacons to connect the church to the world. So our deacons do two important things for us. They, they specialize. They connect us with the homeless and with the poverty of our city, and they also connect us with senior citizens. 
And sometimes those those uh, cross over each other, and sometimes they're different. So that's that's what deacons do. Now later, as the church began to grow, they also began to set aside uh, shepherds for congregations. The word that they used for that originally was presbyteros, and uh, presbyteros later became anglicized into priest. And that's what I am. I'm the shepherd of a congregation called St. Luke. So I'm I am the shepherd, and my. Um, my daughter, once uh, she went off to camp and they have arts and crafts at camp, she would send stuff home. And one time she made a Bible cover for me, and, and, the, and I still have it. The Bible cover says, a most famous preacher in Crestline. Well, that is not a real high bar, but I'm, that's why she's my favorite child. So uh, I'm a, I am, they you know call me the preacher of the church, but really I'm a priest. I'm the shepherd uh, of, of this congregation, and that's the Presbyteros. The third order uh, came from the 12 themselves, the 12 disciples, or the 12 apostles. And that's a word called episkopos. They became overseers of pods, if you will, of congregations led by shepherds and served by deacons. So you had these three kind of layers of of ministry. And episkopos is where we get the word bishop. Now, the word episkopos sounds just like episcopal, and it's intended to. I'll just take it aside and tell you that that we all have these same origins. And so for that reason, our churches... uh, are often named, or the oldest churches among us, the oldest denominations are often named by how they order themselves. So, for instance, uh, Presbyterians are ordered by uh, a clergy and elders, a laity, uh, but not bishops. And so, so to distinguish themselves from our church, they call themselves the Presbyterian Church. The Methodist Church uh, used to be called the Methodist Episcopal Church, and to even complicate that, if you look at some older church buildings, if they uh, date date back to the early 20th century, uh, you might have the ME Church South and the ME Church North because it split after the Civil War. Uh, later, the Methodist Church would join with uh, United Brethren and become the United Methodist Church. So it has a history. Uh, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, that's where they get their name, is a African-American offshoot of the Methodist Episcopal Church. And so again, these, these names are like building blocks of, of how they order each other, and that's just an interesting uh, way. So now you know. Now you know if you if you look at a church sign and and the word and it's got the word uh, presbyteros or episkopos or any sort of combination of old Greek wording in it, then you'll know that it's an, an older denomination that orders itself perhaps off the Bible. Um, I'm going to talk about two important threads as we talk about church history, and and you're going to see these two threads come up again and again. The first one is is they're both a mouthful, but they're really easy to understand. The first one is called apostolic succession. That's the first thread that's going to go through the church's story. And what apostolic succession means is that these twelve um, eventually begin to die. Is some of old age, some of martyrdom, uh, but they realize that Christ promised He would return. But obviously that promise was something different than either they understood or it, it was to be fulfilled at a time that, that would be beyond be beyond their lifetime. So here we are 2,000 and some change later, and we're still uh, looking at the sky. But we say it every Sunday, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And we live expectantly like that this world's not complete yet, it's not right yet, and he will come again. In the meantime, we've we still got to be church. 
So these 12 laid hands upon others, all men at the time, although now we, we consecrate in our church women, bishops as well, and we currently have a, a, a bishop-elect of Alabama, the first woman. And so that, that's, that's a, a cool thing for all of our children uh, to watch and to, to dream of growing up. You can be anything, uh, male or female. But in the old days, uh, they were just men. And so these men laid hands on other men who, who laid hands on other men who laid hands on other men, keeping the church going. And then these overseers, these bishops, uh, would lay hands upon clergy and lay people when they confirmed them and baptized them. And, and what they started was an unbroken chain. So what happens in our church when you're confirmed as, a, as an adult in the Episcopal Church and a, and a bishop lays uh, his or her hands upon you, then you're touched by someone who's been touched, who's, by someone who's been touched, by someone who's been touched, by someone who's been touched, all the way back to Jesus. It's an unbroken line of touch. This means that the church uh, is, is, a, is an unbroken fellowship of touch that goes all the way back to the incarnated Christ. For God so loved the world, we're told, that he became his only creation to live among us, to teach us how to live and how to die right and to show us how it all works. But Jesus also ate meals and he made friends and he touched people in this world. And we all, uh, by, by virtue of our humanity, have all been touched by someone who's been touched by someone who's been touched by someone, all the way back to that, that, to that human being. So, so the church is a, is a focused uh, reminder of that apostolic succession. Okay, that's the first thread, and, and that thread will come up uh, throughout this uh, uh, throughout this church history talk, whether this this podcast or the next. So, so hold that thought, because that's the first thing. The second thread that runs through this is called the problem of Constantine. So. Um, let me tell you a little bit about the church, and then I'll tell you about the problem of Constantine, the church of, of the Bible, and the church of, of those first few years. It was an under an underground movement, is probably a good way to describe it. Although although there were places that it wasn't persecuted, it didn't have to be underground. But they worshipped in homes. Uh, there was nothing really that official. Clergy. Clergy had other jobs. Um, shepherds uh, would do something else during the week. But if you were to get into a time machine, you, and if you could speak their language, you would find some things that were very, very familiar to, to modern people. We do have in our possession some 4th century liturgies. I think that's about the oldest that they found. Um, some 4th century kind of stuff that's very similar to what we do uh, today. So, so that they, there would be scripture. Although for them, especially the earliest churches, that might be a letter from their friend uh, Paul, who started their church, say in a place like Corinth, they would read. They would also read from the Hebrew Scriptures, and they'd read a letter, uh, read encouragement. They would hear a sermon. Uh, they would have the Eucharist. They did something different back then. However, they um, they had a, a long, a long, long period uh, where people would be formed for membership, and so it's called the catechumenate. These adults, while they were studying, uh, they would leave the service at the peace, and so only the baptized would have. Um, would have the Eucharist together, but other than that, there were a lot of things about it that were just just very very similar. I, I think I think again, if we were to travel back, we would feel at home. Uh, things changed, however, in the fourth century, and it really it didn't begin in church. It began with a battle. There was a 
gosh, a, a, a multi-party civil war for the sole, excuse me, the sole leadership of the Roman Empire. And up from the smoke emerged uh, a man named Constantine. He actually fought a final battle called Milvian Bridge in the year 312 against a rival leader named Maxentius. And the legend has it is that is that Constantine, legend varies a little bit between the Latin West and the Greek East, but I'm going to fuse the two and just sort of tell you what the story t- is. Uh, the, the legend has it that Constantine had a dream the night before the battle, and in the, in the dream, uh, he, a cross appeared in the sky, and God said, "By this sign, you will conquer." Now, for the Greeks, it was the Cairo, the uh, the monogram of Jesus in Greek. And so, whether it was a cross or whether it was a Cairo, whether it was a combination of the two, uh, Constantine painted the emblem of Christ on the shields of his soldiers. He was not a Christian, uh, but rather, God made him this promise. He wins the battle and becomes the sole leader of the Roman Empire. The next year. Constantine signed something called the Edict of Milan, which is an edict of toleration. It wasn't it wasn't uh, uh, condone, condoning Christianity or endorsing Christianity, but it was it was making it making a multi plural religious society possible so that Christians weren't hurt. How were Christians hurt in those days? Well, they were different in the way that the Bible asks us to be different, and and being different was not something that you did in the Roman world. You pretty much stayed in your lane, and conformity was very, very important. So, so one of the ways that the emperors would glue their empire together, and remember the Roman Empire, and at this time, especially between the first and third centuries, is an unrivaled uh, human accomplishment. I mean, it goes all the way from Britain. All around the coast of the of the Mediterranean, all the way to North Africa. I mean, Mediterranean's a Roman lake. So you got all these languages, and you got all these peoples, you got all these cities that were bound together by some really, really good roads and really, really good trade. Uh, but you had to have a glue to hold all that together. Well, the Roman emperors had a really smart idea. They just simply made themselves divine. Um, at the time of Jesus, the coins uh, with Augustus uh, face upon them said that he was the son of a god. And so you, what Roman would do is they would worship the the genius of the emperor, the spirit of the emperor, the divine spirit of the emperor, if you would. And you, you know, it didn't really matter what you believed about it. You just pay your temple tax and, and, and place your vote, so to speak, and show up at the right time and they know that you're a loyal subject. Except Christians didn't do that kind of stuff. They, they didn't. They didn't worship anyone but God alone, the, the God of the Hebrew Bible, and as manifested and, and, and revealed to them through His Son Jesus Christ. And so the Romans just couldn't. They just didn't understand. And, and persecution was spotty. It wasn't uniform across the empire, but it, but it could get pretty hot. And the Edict of Milan ended that. Now. I call this the problem of Constantine. It's not a problem yet, but but it's going to be a problem because over the next few decades, Constantine began to realize that through what had begun as a as a business trip by a man named Paul to these cities in his in his uh, uh, empire, uh, Paul and others, uh, disciples of Paul and disciples of others who who could preach. Uh, this idea called the gospel, uh, and I'll say more about that in just a second, but what had happened was within 300 years, they had gone from a handful to millions of people. Every every Roman city, which would be a tightly packed unit of, of government and taxation in the Roman Empire, had a lot of Christians in it. And so Constantine eventually... Uh, and it, it happened over the course of his lifetime, but eventually made Christianity uh, the representative, if you will, of, of Rome. And that's a problem. 
Now, it's not a problem if you if you don't have soldiers knocking on your door in the middle of the night. It's not a problem if you're not fed to the lions anymore. But it is a, and it's a problem in some ways. The, the early earliest Christians, what they did is they, they, they worshipped in homes and they took care of each other. There's a famous story of a of an epidemic, which is timely for now, right? Uh, an epidemic in the mid-2nd century. Uh, we think it might be typhus, but it killed a third of the empire. And so what would happen in those days is the, is the, is the plague would sort of blow through the town. Roman cities were, were t- dense and packed. Um, and for those of you who know the area around St. Luke's, just imagine the village of Crestline with 150, 200,000 people living in it. And everybody's on top of each other, so so filth was rampant. And and so what the Romans would do when the plague would roll in is they just they just hightail it. If they had money, they would leave every person for themselves. But the Christians stayed. Um, they stayed, and with basic nursing, and this historians have have written about this. They've studied it. And what I mean by that is just hydration and, and bathing. I mean, basically food and uh, water and bathing. They could have saved untold numbers of people. Uh, as one one Roman writer observed of the Christians, he said, they, they take care of their poor and they take care of ours as well. Christians just stayed. They, they loved their neighbor. They took great care of the children, whether they were boys or girls. They, they honored their father and their mother. They were a community of support, and they were safe, and and by this by this witness, if you will, um, within generation, a few generations, they had swelled to, to great numbers. Their witness was simply this: they were good, they were good, and and they took, and again, they were a family. Now, I say I say this is the origin of the church, and I hope I hope that St. Luke's is, is seen that way uh, by the community. I hope that we're feeling. Uh, that pang of, of missing our family in this time of quarantine—that's uh, certainly my—that's certainly my hope, and that's certainly my goal for our church is to recapture that that New Testament idea of what it means to be church, which is less of a building and more of a relationship. But let me let me bring us to the problem. So, also on those days, remember we say Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. They lived expectant. They lived with one eye cocked, looking into the sky, waiting for Jesus to return, trying to make a better world so he would recognize it when he when he got here, uh, taking care of the little ones. Uh, they, they really did good. But when the church became the representative of the emperor, it became professional. And it became a different entity than what had begun. There was a Roman architectural form uh, called Basilica, that uh, which is a word we sometimes use today for large churches, uh, it, it was a Roman municipal building, and in the shape of a basilica is the shape of St. Luke's. I mean, long center aisle, that's a Roman thing. A choir in procession, that's a Roman thing. Vested priest with, with robes and stoles, that's a Roman thing. I'm wearing a toga on a Sunday morning. I mean, all the things that we that we do are not Bible things necessarily. A, a, a processional cross is a Roman thing. Remember the any movie with gladiators and not gladiators, but rather Roman centurions and and an eagle on a stick. I mean, all those are Roman things. And so, so with Constantine, a lot of our worship that we recognize today is is not Bible, but rather Roman. And why would I call that a problem? Well, the church got rich, and they quit looking at the sky. They started looking at the church. The church became a little bit of an end in itself. A sort of a, I, I'll give you an example of a modern-day problem of Constantine. People will, will, will say to me from time to time, Hey, Rich, tell me what we believe about heaven and hell. And I, and I would like to say, you know, or, or anything, tell me what we believe. Well, the presumption there is that, is that I'm a professional 
Christian person for you, and on a need-to-know basis, I can just sort of dial up whatever doctrine you need uh, in order to, to be square with the Lord. That, that's the problem of Constantine. Uh, what I like to say in those situations is, I, first tell me what you believe, and, and let's talk about it as, as friends. Let's see what we believe uh, together. Uh, because the church got rich, and because they were representatives of the emperor, uh, bishops who were formerly workmen uh, sometimes, or shepherds, or tent makers like Paul, uh, suddenly became princes of the church. Investments were adorned with gold and and diamonds, and so the church began to amass uh, wealth and even armies in time. So it became very distant from the, the religion of Jesus and his and his fishermen friends uh, there on the shores of the lake. I've got a great visual for you that, that, that will help us round this out as we think about apostolic succession and the problem of Constantine. A couple of years ago, I had the great pleasure of traveling to Philippi, which is one of the churches. It's the letter in the back of our Bible, Philippians, which is one of my favorite letters because it's so hopeful and happy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice uh, is in the back there. Philippi is a long, long way from Jerusalem, and it's a long way from everywhere. Uh, to get there, you actually fly to Thessaloniki, and then it's a it's an all-day drive just to get up to Philippi. So to think about Paul walking this way. And he walks into Philippi, and I walked into the same road Paul walked in called the Via Ignatia. I was just fascinated. And our guide was breathless because Philippi is so out of the way. It's, it's near, uh, it's, it's in eastern Greece, and it's near the border with that new country called Macedonia. And it's just, it's just in the middle of the sticks. And our guide was breathless because it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And she really wanted us to see it, and very few tourists and pilgrims do see it for that very reason. Well, we get there, and I realize that the UNESCO World Heritage Site part is not so much a Paul part. It's that there are, there are several uh, Byzantine basilica that are located there. So these are several large churches, and they're, they're beginning to reconstruct them, pick the stones up that had toppled down and pile them back up. And these are huge churches. These, are, these churches are similar in style and in scope as the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. Uh, it is, it is, they, they are crazy, domed, marbled, mosaic things, right? And so I had, this, I had this wild thought. I'm standing on the Via Ignatia, and I can even see the chariot ruts in the road. I'm standing there in the road thinking about Paul in the year 51 with a, with a knapsack and an idea. And the idea is something that he called the gospel, and it had three parts. The gospel is that we're saved by grace. Paul knew this. He had blood on his hands. Peter knew it. He denied his best friend three times. God God just loves us anyway and forgives us and, and, and wraps us up and, and bathes us in love if, if we'll accept the gift. These days in this time of quarantine, I'm figuring this out. God can enter anything if we let him, anything, even even this weird distant time. We are saved by grace. And and then And then the second idea was time. We're saved today. The point of religion is not to get us a golden ticket into heaven when we die, but to make life worth living now, to get us through things now, get us through living now. And then finally, if we can do this, it makes us a family. And so he starts a little toehold in a town like Philippi, which quite frankly was a hard place to be a Christian. Reason for this is that Philippi was a military town, so it was hyper Roman. So all the Roman problems that I mentioned earlier uh, take that point five in a town like Philippi. Imagine a town like um, 
Columbus, Georgia, which would be so influenced by Fort Benning, right? You work there, you're, you have military retirees there. I mean, it's just, it's just a patriotic, military-identified place. Same with Philippi. And so this Christian's not sacrificing to the emperor god thing was a big deal. Uh, they, just, they just were odd, and they called Jesus Christ Lord, and that's the word for Savior, I mean for Caesar. Uh, they called, uh, right, they said, grace and peace be unto you by God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace were gifts of the emperor, uh, but now they're, they're gifts of Jesus. They, they were just misunderstood, and they were beat up, and they were thrown in jail, and yet they said rejoice. I think I love that letter for that very reason is because they, they were willfully happy in a world that didn't want them to be happy. And maybe maybe that's a good lesson for this quarantine as well. How can we dig deep and find joy? So I'm standing on this road and I'm looking not at the Philippi that Paul knew, but I'm looking at, at, at these huge churches coming up out of the ground. And I realized that within 500 years, the church had become something very different than what Paul had started. That's the problem of Constantine. So uh, my hope is, is that in this time of quarantine, as we are beginning to look at a new world, and I pray for all those who are suffering in this new world, I also pray that the church will return uh, to what it always did best, which is taking care of each other, uh, looking at the sky in hope, uh, being a beacon of goodness and care, uh, and never leaving anyone behind. Perhaps we can put down the the professionalism uh, of, of, of what we've relegated to Christianity. We can all become a, a kingdom, if you will, of priests to serve our God. Uh, maybe we can all have uh, more skin in the game and not rely on the professionals. Uh, maybe we can put down the problem of Constantine. Well, this is Church History Part 1. Church History Part 2, we're going to pick up at the Reformation and we're going to go to the present day, but the two threads continue. Apostolic succession, the problem of Constantine. I'll see you next time. Thanks, friends.